This episode is brought to you by Element Kombucha. Kombucha is an incredibly delicious drink with a ton of amazing health benefits, primarily gut health. It's got those good bacterias. Yes, some bacterias are good. I've actually got a bottle of Element Kombucha in my hand. This one is called Summer Vibes. So let's take a sip. Oh, wow. Oh yeah, that's the first time trying this particular flavor and it is delicious. My other favorites are the Mountain Oolong as well as the Jasmine Hibiscus. Elements brewing process maintains the traditional methods and ingredients that people have been brewing kombucha with for thousands of years. Each flavor is brewed with strict parameters to bring out the benefits of the plants as well as the best flavors possible. And let me tell you, you can feel the difference. I highly recommend you give Element Kombucha a try. It's delicious, it's healthy, and it's just nice to have in your fridge for when you're thirsty. So go to elementkombucha.com and use promo code ZIAN11 to save 11%. That's ZIAN11 to save 11%. X-I-A-N-11 at elementkombucha.com. This episode is also brought to you by Sheath, the underwear of legends. What makes Sheath different is the pouch on the inside. Now this is a game-changing invention that completely revolutionizes the male undergarment. These are the most comfortable underwear I have ever worn by far. They've got amazing designs and styles, super comfortable fabrics. My favorite is the bamboo and also the V, which is a long leg athletic underwear that doesn't ride up and it supports you where it matters most. So go check out Sheath at sheathunderwear.com and use promo code TIMEWHEEL to save 20%. Once again, that's sheathunderwear.com, promo code TIMEWHEEL.
right. Welcome, everyone. I am here with Corey Allen. How's it going today, Corey? It's going well, man. It's great to speak with you again. Yeah, absolutely. What's been keeping you busy? Uh, it's been a crazy past year, year and a half and stuff. And uh, I know you had a really awesome, successful book launch and so much has probably happened since then. And I'm just curious what you've been doing lately. Mm, well, yeah, I think, um, you know, really over the last six months or so, I've spent a lot of time studying and uh, and practicing and I think, apart from, of course, just the the creation of my podcast and continuing to to make podcasts on the Astro Hustle and uh, creating music and sounds and all the things that I generally do, um, what's been going on above that has been going further upstream into my own personal studies, which then, of course, come out into all the work. Right. And by that, I mean that, you know, it has become increasingly uh, valuable and important to me to read uh, the kind of older and older original texts uh, of the things that have always been interested to me. And I've done that before, but this time around, uh, I, I suppose I would say I dipped into them over the years, in and out and in and out. And uh, this time around, they've really landed in a different way and I, I've been able to understand them and, and turn them into um, something that actually is deployable in myself and in the world and, and seeing it all unfold. Mm -hmm. And whenever you think about it, you know, all of us, no matter if you're very into uh, reading or, or listening to lectures on inner life stuff or you're, you're just starting or whatever, mm -hmm. ultimately everyone's repeating the same thing. You know, every teacher is repeating the same thing. Totally. It's all the, of course, the echoes of, of Dharma are flowing from the same source and they're just kind of continuing to be translated over the last few thousand years. Mm -hmm. And you get to a place, you know, and they, they have these fascinating uh, intersectional points in time where they they come and they run into and all flow like all streams flow into the ocean of someone like Alan Watts and mm -hmm. what his conditioned mind and his system of time and space and neurology and so forth and then his identity on top of it it all it's like creating pasta where you've got this you know the dough of, of dharma and it's his his mind and and where he is in time creates a particular shape and style of pasta and sometimes <laughs> when the timing is right that is incredibly nutritious to people and the world mm -hmm. uh and that's so valuable and of course there's so many people like that um right. i i think you know what has become very interesting to me and um has been just continuing to go further and further back and, you know, uh, read, reread uh, tr new transcriptions and, and translations of the Pali Canon and of the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita and the Tao Te Ching and so forth and just understanding. It's fascinating being able for me to understand, you know, you have sort of the linearity of the deployment of this information, like I, I think perhaps isn't talked about often. And, and so 
and mm-hmm. you know Taoism started in, in China, you know they roughly around four thousand years ago, mm-hmm. which then uh, and Hinduism kind of pre Vedic Hinduism starting in India uh, much after that, and then Buddha you know who was Hindu prior to mythology, then founded Buddhism and India, and then that moved back over to China, and then Taoism and Buddhism sort of formed into a new type of modernized Buddhism, which then went to Japan and turned into Zen Buddhism. Mm. It's very interesting to me that you can see, or at least I, you're reading one line out of the Tao Te Ching, you can see like, wow, this turned into 500 pages worth of text in Buddhism. Mm. And understanding where all of that expanded from, how it developed, because if you really go back further, you understand that someone like Alan Watts or Ram Dass, or you know, pick your your person that suits your preference, mm-hmm. and you see like what's happened with them. Actually, they're like a, a microcosm for what happens with entire Eastern religions. So the translation that you get like of the Dharma through an Alan Watts is the same as what you're getting it through it turning from something like Taoism into Buddhism. It's the same translations happening in the same valuable expansion and uh, kind of atomization of those ideas so that they are more articulated for more cultures and time and space. And so to me, I've just been spending, you know, every night and uh, a, a lot of the days with those works and really digesting them. And uh, mm-hmm. it's been incredible, va- incredibly valuable to me. And right. um, that's what I've been spending most of my time doing. And also that's I'm writing beautiful. another book too. So we can oh, just wow. t- tack that on the end of that. Wonderful. I love it. So it seems to me, from what I gather, is that uh, all of these um, ancient wisdom traditions are drawing from what is known as the primary mystical experience. Is that right? Yeah, sure. That sounds, sounds good. Um, so, you know, again, they're, they're tapping into a similar experience. It could be, you know, through meditation or psychedelics or maybe even just, you know, a, a natural altered state of consciousness, what some may call a Kundalini arousal or, awakening and they all channel the information in the best way they can but it is uh informed by the culture that they grew up in so Mm. there are like these little differences but they're all kind of saying the same thing like even someone like jesus is saying the same thing that the bhagavad gita is saying that's that that buddha is saying and of course they have different kind of tenets and um structures around the philosophy but the core message is we're all one it's all love treat your neighbor the way you want to be treated and we will can all prosper and grow together and also nature is sacred i think that's a big part of these uh wisdom traditions is you know don't don't abuse nature don't use it for profit don't destroy the earth mm-hmm. i think that uh, that's a big message coming from that uh, that of course the human most humans don't listen to or aren't exposed to the right information so we do uh unfortunately harm the earth but um that primary mystical experience tends to i think 
be even what people are tapping into on ayahuasca or on LSD or on these psychedelics where they getting this they're getting this big download that seems like truth in its raw signal. Well, what would you kind of expand on as far as the primary mystical experience and, you know, receiving truth? Yeah, I mean, it's basically what's happening in, in any of those states, in my opinion, you know, or in, in just, a, as you said earlier, a non-intoxicated state. Uh, it's all the same thing. Um, there, it's just manifesting in different ways. And ultimately, it's it's glimpsing reality, um, the reality and, and the awareness that exists underneath your overlapping patterns of mind. Mm-hmm. And so if you think of, you know, all of the ways that we've been conditioned to see the world and, and think, you know, by our, our family, by our culture, our surroundings, and so forth, um, it creates such an, a, an irreversible sort of foundational preset for observing reality. We, we can't help but translate experience with our relationship to experience. And what's an interesting sort of game that you can play with yourself is if you think of, you first off, start thinking of your parents. And as an adult, you think of the times that you talk to your parents now, if they're still alive. I suppose you could talk to them if they're dead too. And you say, okay, they were wrong about this, no big deal, you know, just this, this topic or whatever. You move on to another thing. You remember, oh yeah, they were also like, like I can't believe that they think this. It's crazy that like to me that seems so like objectively untrue. And like I, I wish you know we would get on the same page. Everyone has these disagreements or sort of differing of opinions with their parents, and that's very normal and natural because obviously we're all individuals and and we're all not going to agree on things. But it gets interesting whenever you think about the foundation of your entire reality structure and your entire egoic structure and belief system is predicated upon the information, mostly the information that you begin learning at the time of birth and prior to the arising of your self-aware consciousness, which generally happens around three or four for people. Mm -hmm. Your parents are already taking their parents and their parents and their parents, all of the stuff and all of the the identity games and structures are all getting folded into, you know, their their reality is getting folded into and pressed into. Ultimately, it's just a bunch of their preferences are getting pressed into your mind mm-hmm. before you can even talk or think. And so all of those things, the way that they see the world, shape how you see the world. And it happens at such a deep level that it's pretty much impossible to ever undo. You can only relate to those things in a different way. And so considering now, one, as an adult, thinking of the times that you speak with your parents and you think, oh, I can't believe they think that way or, or they're wrong. That's the person that was putting all, with 20 or 30 less years experience and growth, putting all of that information into what created your foundation of reality. Mm-hmm. So th- mm-hmm. considering that, you consider that the deep things that have a wordless pull at the inside of your soul that feel intuitively so with so much friction and so much uh, struggle against some type of thing that feels like it's a part of being as opposed to being something that's been added to being was created by two fallible people who get it wrong sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that's a very liberating thing to understand because you can then realize that, oh, I've just been spending my life reacting to life. I've been 
I've inherited this system of patterns and ways of thinking, which are flawed, but happens so early that I have this inescapable connection and, and uh, uh, impact from them. And so now I'm just reacting to all life based on all of someone else's preferences. Mm -hmm. And it's not until you start to meditate or you have some type of, uh, you know, psychedelic experience or whatever it is. Oft also traumatic intervention can make this happen. You know, mm -hmm. if you are, uh, you, you have some moment in your life that really jars you and shakes you from the outside. Mm -hmm. What happens then is that it creates space between your, uh, perception of your your perceiving of reality and reality itself and allows you to see like oh wait a second uh, it's a little bit of the birth of the witness mind in some way and you right. begin glimpsing not truth but you begin glimpsing the fact that what you're perceiving and even the way that you're making decisions in the world and, and your choices are have been automated up until that point and right. so in your going back to the notion of what is this primary mystical experience, it's catching a, a quick glimpse of that, but with most of the filters removed. So it's the, th it's this place in mind, seeing from the place in mind below those overlapping patterns of personality and identity. And then essentially what happens is a hole is cut in those patterns of mind so that you're able to glimpse the not objective reality or object, objective truth, but one that is more divorced from your own uh, attachment to your identity structure. So you're able to see not from an intellectual place, but you're able to see from the heart-mind uh, for that brief moment. And often that's the experience that then sets people off onto a lifetime of self-study. Right. 100%. Yeah, it's so funny how clear it can become about, you know, in a, in, a, in a mystical experience, it could become so clear as to why we do the habits that we do that maybe hold us back. You're, you're kind of asking yourself, hmm, why do I keep doing this thing that I know is self-destructive, that I know just absolutely poisoned on my body? And then you get into a mystical experience, and then you're like, what are you doing? It's like you totally get this sense of, truth about the act versus this automated uh, behavior pattern that just continues until you check it by getting into a mystical state or by meditating or somehow or another breaking the pattern up because it's, I guess, programmed into you and maybe even through DNA. I've heard things like, you know, alcoholism or something can be passed down through DNA and thus, that child is subject to these diseases that, you know, he didn't ask for. It just kind of happened. I'm not sure if you know anything about that, but um, that's a really interesting topic to me because, again, you know, I, I feel like as of the past maybe six months or so, I've been going through this shedding of, you know, being in the music scene and having the late nights and drinking at the bar and supporting what, you know, it's like you're, I'm supporting my friend's bar by, by drinking here. It feels good. Right. Mm -hmm. But then after some amount of time, you're like, hold on, this isn't serving me. You know, what am I getting at this anymore? And it just doesn't feel right. So those, those mystical experiences can really like shake you out of it. Um, so I guess my question following up with that is that kind of, um, 
you know, how, how is it that we get programmed in these ways from being a kid? And then how, what tools are available to help us shake out and grow out of these phases in our, in our life that no longer serve us? Yeah, well, first off, uh, to the question during your, uh, the, the last thing you're, you're speaking there, um, I did a podcast with Dr. Carl Hart a few weeks ago, who's one of the leading researchers on addiction and, mm-hmm. uh, and drugs and so forth. Yeah. And uh, he, I talked to him about what you, what you brought up, and his point of view from his research is that uh, addiction is very much nurture as opposed to nature, meaning that it is not an inherent born uh, genetic predisposition, but rather um, it is uh, environmental in nature in combination with mo- one of the things that most people don't uh, catch is that it, it is, of course, influenced by your surroundings greatly, but mm-hmm. the place to where addiction, and he defines addiction, which I asked him, by mm-hmm. is something disrupting your life. That's That was sort of how he terms addiction, because people can use different intoxicants and not be addicted. They're just using them. But to really sure. be addicted, is it keeping you from meeting your goals and and your you know duties and, and values and so forth as a person? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that place of addiction comes from a combination of uh, this environmental n- you know, nurturing to have the influence to to seek those things, and then in combination with a genetic predisposition towards depression or other type of uh, mental health problems. And so whenever you put those two things together, that is generally whenever you find the traditional uh, sort of characterized version and idea of, of addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you know, you're talking about having some type of psychedelic experience and realizing, oh, wait a second, catching this gap. And then right. you kind of go back into your old ways and then you have another experience, a psychedelic experience, and then you have that that momentary uh, dilation of the spotlight of awareness and then it sort of slowly shrinks again. Mm-hmm. That's really one of the dangers of psychedelics. Ultimately, what that is, not I mean, danger might be a str- uh, strong word, but I understand what you mean. Di- the, the potential diversions, because what happens is that that is a form of just spiritual bypassing. Okay. It's the idea of wanting to, you know, uh, of putting the work and the study in the, not, you know, it's easy to say or make yourself believe that you're actually doing this, you know, some type of inner work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, basically what happens is putting all of the work the true effort, the hard work that's not really um, that we don't desire. It is the 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 removement of the the removal of the attachment to desire and so on. Mm-hmm. That work is placed upon the the drug instead of yourself. And so you get into this thing where you go, well, I want to do this. Doesn't wouldn't this be great? I feel good about myself for doing this, but I don't actually have to change. So you're deceiving yourself. Mm-hmm. And then you go take the psychedelic and you go, oh, now I'm having this big thing. And now I did this thing. And aren't I, you know, spiritual or I'm seeing this, sure. th- I'm seeing this way. And now I'm going to make a change. But you don't make any changes. And you go back to the old ways. And I'm not just saying you, I just mean in, in of course. overall, this is what happens. Yep. And so people get in this cycle. And then they start to lean on psychedelics or those experiences as something much more than they are, 
Mm-hmm. They're confusing a window for what's inside or outside of the window. It's just a looking glass that you can see yourself momentarily. But if you're not willing to actually do the work on yourself after that, then it's really just a fool's errand. You know, there's there's not a lot of value in seeing that if you don't do anything about it. So how one can translate those valuable eye-opening experiences into something tangible, into long-term effects, is by recognizing that every bit of our specific journey in life, everything that comes to us, you know, in your circumstances, which you mentioned, this uh, notion of kind of knowing intuitively that you'd like to drink less and you'd like to smoke less, it, you know that is true. Under Again, this is the patterns of mind thing. In, right. in, your e- in your identity of ego and identification, you continue to do these things below that in your intuitive heart-mind you know that you don't want to do them. However, the patterns of your behavior and, and activity continue to, you know, execute these behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at what those, the challenges and those struggles that you want to overcome as changing it to where you see that not as much as, uh, uh, for the the fact that there's sort of these annoying things you want to let go of, but look at them as the actual work. So that becomes your inner work. And it's not even about the alcohol. So you go, all right, these are the things I want to, I want to stop doing. It doesn't really matter what they are. It could also be food or, you know, looking at porn or whatever, some, whatever thing is, yeah. you know, eating fast food is what I meant by food. Um, sure, sure. And so you, whatever the thing is, so it's not about the thing as much as it is, is about desire and attachment. Mm-hmm. So your work becomes recognizing what it is that is pulling your string and has got you caught up. And then the work becomes slowly moving away and letting go of your attachment to that thing. But you have to be honest in recognizing the, your momentary desires and your attachment to that before you can let it go. And, and only through really having that level of integrity and dedication to mm-hmm. where you actually want to be and who you want to run the show. Do you want the the mind that's it, that lives in the chest to do your thinking? Or do you want the fragmented mind that is being kind of controlled by the reverberations from your past and, and your intellect to do the thinking? It's a very challenging and, and long process to be able to let go. It's taken me two decades to let go more and more mm-hmm. of the intellectual landscape and surrender. And that's the thing that people, you know, you, you hear this term surrender in, in, in inner life work a lot, and it really doesn't uh, mesh well with the Western mind because we want to, we're, we're everything about our culture is about having power and control and showing yeah. our worth through our productivity and so on. But surrender has nothing to do with bowing down to someone else. It's bowing down to yourself. Mm. It's surrendering to the mat within that you know, you know, you can feel where you want to go and who you want to be. But you have to surrender your egoic structure. You have to surrender that to the heart. And it's so, so hard and takes a long time. But once you begin thinking of it in that way, it's like I'm le- like I'm dropping down. I'm letting go of all of that stuff that that the things that I think give me value, 
all those identity things that I've kind of fooled myself that I'm holding on to that just keep the same grasping and releasing, grasping and releasing, that same hamster wheel of thing. You can slowly start letting go of those things. And right. that's that's how you can get out and through those type of attachments. 100%. Wow, that was beautiful. Thank you, brother. Uh, as far as, you know, feeling into the heart or using the heart mind, as you were saying, you know, what are some best practices to start to understand that concept? Because I'm sure a lot of people listening, like they, they like the idea of that, but they don't exactly know how it feels yet or know how to get there, um, the, the, you know, uh, to, to find that daily. So how do you recommend someone start to comprehend living in the heart, living from the heart? Yeah, that's a really great question. I, and I think a good way to do it if you're into meditation uh, or if you meditate um, is start breathing during meditation. Just start breathing. And if you're, you're breathing during a meditation, actually breathe from the chest. Feel like there's like a mouth on your chest almost. Mm. And that there's like a, a, imagine your heart being like a sun inside of your chest cavity. And every time you breathe in, you're, you're breathing in all of your, your energy, your air, you know, everything that comes in there. And as you exhale, it expands outward from the chest softly and gently in all directions, kind of radiating. Just to sort of focus on that heart space, another valuable practice in, in meditation is in the same way that you think of a, uh, a we think we recall a, a moment that was embarrassing in life or a moment that was regrettable where we, we kind of cringe and those pop up just randomly a lot of times. And you'll think of some, you know, you, you ask someone out whenever you were 13 and you got shot down and, you know, it, that just pops up in your mind and you're like, ah, and it makes your nervous system curdle a little bit. Right. You know, th that's one of these things that we all experience. It's interesting is that you feel real emotion, you know, in those moments. You feel true, like, and like regrettability and and just uh, all those kind of negative emotions. What's interesting about that is that you consider how that is real and the manifestation of those feelings come through and back. You can flip that around and have the inverse. So if you think of during meditation a positive moment in life, you can recall and kind of mind the, the memory of yourself for a beautiful moment that had some particular positive resonance. It can be something so simple as a time that, you know, your parent did something loving for you, a time that you're even something where you're sitting there and your pet has its head resting on your leg and it's sleeping right. and you're petting it. Anything that gives you that warm feeling inside mm -hmm. and actually focus on that sensation, that moment, replay that tape in your head kind of over and over and mm -hmm. let that feeling start to build in the chest and then you can let go of the actual tape that you're watching of the the event and just start focusing on that feeling and breathing that feeling and holding that feeling in the chest as you meditate. And that begins to awaken your awareness of what exists in you already, and, which is that is the, the vibe, the energy, the space of heart-mind and, and ultimately becomes the, tr the transactional place of where meta-meditation comes from. And so once you learn how to harness that awareness inside, you can then send it out in abundance because you realize that, oh, well, I'm breathing in God. 
that's cool. I am God, and so is everyone else. So I'm going to become like an air purifier for for <laughs> the, the universe and breathe this in and send it out, and it's all good. Like an air purifier isn't worried about running out of air. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's like the individual should not be worried about running out of love and, and positivity, right? So anyway, so those are some, some meditative it. practices. Going into actual day-to-day -day life and a bit more firm intellectual uh, ways of doing it is that just start watching in life whenever you are you you see your mind chattering away and you know the the three things of course that you, that cause the mind to chatter cause us to get hung up are the three poisons of anger desire and you know avidya also it's suffering uh, i mean uh, ignorance delusion mm -hmm. and i feel like that one always needs translation because those words are very reactive to people um sure. That one is false story. So you have this narrative in your mind about wh how someone's living their lives, what someone is saying about you, what someone is going to say. And that story starts playing in your head and you, st you believe it as true and you start reacting and feeling emotion and it becomes real to you and you, in that it dictates your behavior. That's delusion. That's, that's what it is meant by ignorance. It's, it's not knowing. It's, it's putting falsity on what is really there and getting hung up in the story of your mind. Mm -hmm. So you can see anytime the anger, the desire, the delusion, the ignorance, those things get start chattering away in your brain. And you start thinking and making decisions from that place. You just catch it. You just see, oh, okay, I'm chattering away again. And this is my the mantra that I, I use uh, for myself is I just go, not head, heart. Mm -hmm. Not head, heart. And I, that's, that's it. So you see that your brain chattering away, you stop it and you go, you can even point to it if you want, not head, heart. Mm -hmm. And you remember to just stop that chattering and go back down to what am I, what's, what am I feeling? And literally imagine your mind, if it's like this, this city of people all talking in your head, <laughs> just imagine that thing, just hit the pause button on it and point your attention to the chest. Okay, what is the thing I already know? You just mm -hmm. know what's what's being said and what you know your arising truth is, what your the wisdom that's coming into you right now. And wisdom doesn't necessarily mean that you're right. And, you know, rightness and correctness aren't necessarily connected. You know, and so okay, what's coming up? Honestly, what's coming up? Feel that and just live and speak from that place. And it takes repetition and time, but just every time that you notice that chattering, not head, heart, go back to the heart and uh, focus on that, you know? Yeah, love it. Love it, love it. Yeah, um, something that stuck out to me about what you said was, you know, um, in that meditation is feeling, breathing in God. And I just wanted to ask you, how would you recommend uh, someone you know, understand what God is, because I know for me, it was a very hard concept to wrap my head around before any psychedelic experiences um, where you, you know, in, in my particular psychedelic experiences, I feel like I could feel the presence of a large, highly in intelligent force, you know, just kind of like, being present in the air. Um, and then I was like, oh, God, okay, I'm starting to get it. I'm starting to understand that he's everywhere all the time. And it's not even a he, it's kind of an it. And 
that type of thing. Um, but for someone who hasn't had that experience and who only thinks of God and the sense of Christianity or like some floating man on a cloud, you know, who, who watches you and, and checks, you know, and makes sure you're, you're, you're doing good things. And if you're doing bad things, he's, he's marking it against you and this type of thing. How, how could one even start to perceive what God is, you know, without psychedelics or without this context of religion? Sure. Yeah, that's another good question, man. Um, I think one approach to understanding it is, first off, take away, remove the identity and the preconceived notion. It's you know of of what it is. So it's not a, a person, right? Um, I think that the Heart Sutra has a uh, is a great explanation of that, speaking to emptiness in Buddhism. And again, we hear emptiness and we think of something negative or scary, but it really means, it actually means oneness, you know? Mm -hmm. So if you think about yourself and the fact that you're made of, of atoms, of basically a whole bunch of atoms, and then everything outside of you, all of the table and the chair, or the car, your headphones, everything else, the sky, the bird that just flew by, the reflection of the bird. Mm -hmm. It's also all made of atoms. You realize that emptiness is, actually your body is completely empty, and emptiness is your complete body. So everything out there, the world is made of atoms. It seem, it's not you, it doesn't seem. Mm -hmm. And then you recognize, oh, I'm made of atoms. I seem to be mistaking this for me, but actually, it's all one part of the same system. It's all mm. you, it's all flowing in the same wash of of matter, right? Right. And so that all of that th those atoms, that's God. Now wow. we can think about it from because it's simply it's really just it's what is, right? And it's completely removed from any sense of religiosity or any sense of time or who you know how you talk about it or any of that stuff mm -hmm. it's just what is but general science would say it's not conscious you know like they think that the atoms are not any intelligence there's no uh consciousness to them they're simply this electrical kind of thing that you know exists because of the big bang and and they kind of like explain it away as yeah, it's nothing special man it's nothing special it's just <laughs> atoms you know and but then when you have that experience of understanding that there is this intelligence and a metaphor that i've always really liked to explain what god is is if you were to take all of the components that would build a cathedral and set them out on a field somewhere give it a million years would a cathedral then be built yeah. You know, and, and the answer is no. It takes intelligence to build a cathedral. It takes intelligence to bring something beautiful into existence. And that is what this world is. It, there is beauty. There is, and we're so much more complex than a cathedral. Like a cathedral is within every single cell that makes us, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, like people, you know, if you, I don't see how that's a problem, what you're saying about, you know, about scientists that, that are still on the other side of the hard problem of consciousness saying that a single uh, atom doesn't have any intelligence. Uh, that's not a problem for me. 
You know what I mean? It's like okay, it doesn't need to because they're still on the other the what you know, the other side of Western philosophy and psych and neuropsychology. Mm-hmm. You know the uh, you know our this is why I think panpsychism has become interesting to people is because it sort of is beginning to address that in a new way where it suggests that all matter has consciousness, not self-awareness or even awareness, but it is the component of matter that has the potential for consciousness. Okay. And the hard problem in, in, in uh, philosophy, of course, the philosophy of mind is that if your br- brain is made of the same elemental matter that uh, exists in other areas in the world, however, it's configured in a way, it's just the, the right atoms are put together in the right way that for some reason bring rise to consciousness it seems why doesn't that also happen in all the other stuff out there you know like that that is made of the exact same stuff that's put together in different ways so why does if you you plunk enough atoms together to make a brain that you get awareness and so there's that's the hard problem of consciousness panpsychism suggests that you know the inherent potential for consciousness is available in in all atoms which i i enjoy i think that thinking of awareness as something that's you know more special than non-awareness is just sort of uh human arrogance in some way like you look at a leaf like that leaf is an ecstasy it, you know it's not kind of, it's yeah. not self-aware but it's experiencing ecstasy you know mm-hmm. just as everything else is and so taking this out of the abstract down to something that people can work with a little bit more. So just understanding that notion, I, I kind of use that, uh, the Heart Sutra, which I suggest reading to anybody. anybody. Um, That's a book, the Heart Sutra? Well, it's it's a sutra out of the, the uh, Pali Canon. And, okay. But if you Google it, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh has a great translation of it called The, uh, the Other Shore, I, I recommend. Okay. Um, you can understand that idea a bit more deeply, but I use that to say, to kind of remove all of the identity from it, but putting it in terms of something that's a bit more human, um, just recognizing that like everything that's coming through everyone, it's all really the same thing. It's like, Mm -hmm. if you start seeing like, whenever I'm talking to you, I'm thinking, oh, I'm, I'm talking to myself. Yeah, I, I know every time whenever I hear someone outside walking by and they're having a phone conversation, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm out there having a conversation. Or the someone drives by, I'm like, oh, I just drove by. That's my instinct, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's like you realize that we're, we are all uh, the emergence of that um, energy, that atomic field uh, of being coming through in, in different ways and different forms. And I, I even, I had this, <laughs> this is a, uh, a fun little insight that I think you'll enjoy. So years ago, I was, uh, <laughs> I was, I, w- I was walking through like my bathroom and I, uh, bumped into like a towel, like a, a bath towel that was hanging there, mm-hmm. like my back, just my shoulder or whatever. Like I moved in a way I ran into it. And I turned around and I went, oh, sorry about this. Excuse me. And I started laughing because I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and only now do I understand what happened, you know? And I was just laughing because it seemed so absurd, but it felt like a person, you know? I was like, oh, I'm sorry right. about that. Right. Um, and now I think, oh, yeah, like everything. It's because I was starting to understand and relate to everything outside of 
you know, the shaved down view of humanness as being the one, right? Mm -hmm. And so now you can look at, uh, so one thing at a time here. (laughs) So now whenever I touch a table, like I have my hands on my desk right now and I move my thumb, I'll think, oh, there's God. Mm -hmm. My thumb is rubbing it. Or I'll be walking and I'll think, whoa, I'm walking on God right now. Or my mm-hmm. shirt is, or or there that person walking by, they it's in there and it's also all of their physical container as well. Mm-hmm. And so whenever I, I touch things, it's just this reminder to ultimately bring it back to all to the heart space, right? So you remember, oh yes, it's it's all God. And so bring it back to the chest. So then you, you're dropping out of your intellectual mind back into the heart mind again. And right. it just brings you in that space of presence and uh, out of the ego game and out of separateness because basically suffering is that which separates. Right. It really is. That's beautiful. That's a great way to explain it for sure. And I definitely get that feeling, but I guess it's just about how to stay connected with it on a 24-hour basis. And I guess, is that possible? Can you be? Connected twenty four seven. I mean, uh, you know, awakened beings. I suppose <laughs> they they ha- are said to be that way. You know, which there are. I don't know any of them now, but there have seemed to have been a few of them in history. Um, but you know, right. even if you can't, it's it's all good. It, that's the, the thing about it is it doesn't really matter if you can stay in that space all the time or not, um, mm-hmm. because you're here right now, and you know, I'm here right now. We're all here to do our work in this moment, you know, and in mm-hmm. this particular incarnation. And uh, whether you want to ascribe uh, a continuity of identity to that incarnation is up to you. Um, I. I do and I don't. You know, you look at it in the sense of Buddhism, they say, oh, well, we are the emptiness and it keeps going and emerging and going and emerging, but it has no paper, it has no personality. But something mm-hmm. like the Hindu school will say, you know, you keep going and coming and going, but it does have connection of personality. Mm-hmm. So whichever way you want to slice it or no way at all. But it, we're here now. It doesn't matter if you're just hearing these ideas for the first time mm-hmm. or if you're close to letting go of all of your attachments and fully waking up forever. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really matter. It, what matters is that you're here and you're looking at each thing that comes to you in your life as part of the work that you do while you're here. Every reaction, every frustration, every time you get hung up in your your ego, every time you do something regrettable that you know could be you know, better, um, more high-minded, just sure. seeing that. E- even little things where, like, this can get real nuanced and, f- and fine in a, in a beautiful way. I've started looking at things where, like, if I have a my schedule and I'm, I need to do a bunch of things during the day, and then something gets weird where now things are overlapping, normally, you know, it, it, that would have stressed me out. Yeah. And I would have thought, ah, oh, and now I'm sort of like irritated at whatever the thing is, the person, the the chance through that that schism into my schedule. Now mm-hmm. I look at it and I think, oh, I can't. This is perfect. Mm-hmm. This is perfect. This is this is exactly what I need to to. This is what comes next. This is wonderful, and it's all going to work out beautifully. Like watch it. Mm-hmm. And the more I see that, even 
you get caught at a stoplight. People go, ah, I didn't make the light. No, I go, ah, I didn't make the light. That's This is awesome. Right. This is perfect. You know what I mean? Because yep. of what will come next, and it's exactly how things need to be. But it's all about how you work with and respond to that stuff right. to see to see that, you know? And yeah, I've, I've heard this concept of, for example, when you said, you know, getting stopped at the light, so many people think, oh, I didn't make it. It's a bad thing. Um, but sometimes this concept comes up in me about, I wasn't meant to make this light. And maybe if I did make that light, something else, maybe unfavorable, would have happened. So, in fact, this is protecting me. Yeah. This, this, this slowdown moment to just wait here now is protecting me. It's for my safety. It's for my growth. Like, do you ever get that feeling? Yeah, but I, I think I, I think about it. I do, but I think about it in a, a more uh, specific way. And I think this light here is being of service to me to continue to work with my reaction to not getting to the light, my attachment yeah. to desiring to have my ego be, be in control of what is of the emptiness yeah. at all times. That's how I think about it. That's wonderful. Beautiful. So a minute ago you were mentioning, you know, we're here now doing the work and that that gave rise to a question in me about, you know, to ask you, what is it? What is the work? Why are we here? It, you know, like my sense of why we're here is to create more information for the database that is existence um, for future generations to draw from, whether it be, a, a, you know, your creativity or your words or your music or your art, we're here to leave something behind to further, you know, the evolution of, you know, whether it be the species or just existence or whatever it is. Um, it's kind of hard to put into words, but I guess my question to you is, what is our purpose? Mm -hmm. So, uh, what I'm hearing you say is that you want to be a good ancestor. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a nice outlook. I think our purpose is to to free ourselves. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's to free it's that's liberation is really it's what my goal is anyway. I think and I think that ultimately that's what we're we're all seeking. It mm -hmm. just takes we take different ways and and strange ways to get there. So ways yeah. that aren't wrapped in the wallpaper of the language that we've been using. But I think that's it. It's you freedom from to find the freedom from uh, our attachment, our clinging, and to really release ourselves into what is. Mm -hmm. uh, it's almost to return where we came from. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, we we came from pure awareness or something. We came from pure possibility, pure consciousness, and then we try to. Uh, you know, put words on it and put titles on it and, and, and do all these things to make us feel as if we're accomplishing something daily, um, weekly or monthly, you know, however, you know, whatever your schedule is. But it's like to awaken truly, to liberate yourself, it, I know it can happen on occasion and people might feel like this is a forever thing now. And then a year from then, 
they've forgotten about it entirely. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> or five, five minutes later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so are you saying that our purpose is to try and remember that as often as we can and stay liberated? And, and maybe what is your concept of liberation? Yeah, that, I think that's that's what it seems to be about to me. Um, and of course, that doesn't remove any of the joys. It actually magnifies just the the profundity of being. You know, mm-hmm. someone can hear that and think, "Oh, well, what are you just you just working all the time on trying to you're getting uh, you know uh, whatever." And you know, trying to trying to be holy is another form of grasping. <laughs> And I, mm-hmm. it's another identity game, right? Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think that y- it's a gradual process, and um, getting to that place is just to me, it's the goal. And I think that that's actually the the book I'm working on now is a map on how to get there every morning. And that's great. the idea is because it needs to be a repeated process. Exactly. Yeah, you have to keep remembering and remembering and remembering. There's a lot of great, you know, tools and methods and people, I mean everyone's talked about that forever. Mm-hmm. Um and the more you remember, the more it sort of sinks in and uh, the more often you remember and then uh you get to I think you can get to a point where you're always at least half remembering and then you can go sort of into full remembering when then you go, Oh yeah, yeah, right. I forgot. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I like Gurdjieff has that, that notion of self remembering, which is kind of a nice way to, to frame it. Uh, and so anyway, um, yeah, I think a good way to stay free is to establish a practice where you touch that place or, or what that place means to you right now as frequently as possible. Like, so you actually live in that space. And so what things do you say no to that you think takes you out of it? You know, cause I, I for one know that the world is suffering from social media addiction mm. and it maybe not the whole world, but it just, it feels like the whole world. But, um, I feel like that takes me out of it. Right. And it's something that, you know, we've learned or, or started to, feel as if it's something we have to do. We have to stay connected. We have to let people know we exist. We have to put our message out. But as I get on social media and you're looking at other people all the time, it just, it doesn't make you feel great. So it's like, what things can you, do you particularly say no to that maybe that you used to do, but now have found don't serve you and, and therefore you create space in your life for more and more liberation, more awakening, more high vibe energy uh, circulating throughout your body. Uh, you know, what do you say? I don't need that anymore. I don't do that anymore. Cause it's, even though maybe the majority of people do it. Yeah. That's another good question. And also, you know, with social media, it's a good thing to point to. You want to hang out and help your friends bar. You want to hang out and like your friend's account, you know, help mm-hmm. them uh, along and, and be there. And again, it's kind of not so much about the the medium, uh, you know, it's about how you're relating to that thing. It's all about, you know, because, you know, one could say, this is, this is where people get, again, this is another good example where people think uh, renunciation or something where they're like, oh, you're like, what, are you going to starve yourself? Like, you're going to even give up a desire to food for food where you don't eat? Mm-hmm. Well, it's not about giving up food. It's about giving up your your attachment to food. The compulsive mm-hmm. impulse where you, you don't have control over your relationship with it. And once you once you 
truly cut that rope, then you sure in, indulge and enjoy the food for what it is. But in the moment of having it or wanting it, not getting slung back into the ego game, right? And so uh, social media is like that. At least that's how I relate to it. I understand its purpose and its value of connectivity. Um, and I, I do limit my usage of it uh, for, for because it is so slippery and it has such a strong pull. So I limit my usage of it. Um, but at the same time, I realize that it's a very valuable tool. You know, people, like I make these little posts on Instagram and uh, people every day hit me up and say, hey, I, I switch these out as my home screen on my phone like every time you post one because I just because that's their reminder, right. you know? And so I'm like, oh, well, I'm, you know, giving thousands of people those little reminders and that's a, that's a net gain, you know, but just managing the, my relationship to it. Um, mm. And so... To your, your question about what are some of the things that I've given up, a lot of things, uh, even something as small as like, well, I, I love coffee, mm -hmm. but I realize that I love coffee. I got to own it. You know, I got to own, own my, that's a terrible word to use. I got to <laughs> um, master my relationship with it and then let go of it. Uh, and so I've done that. And, and as I went through a period of like, okay, I'm going to stop drinking coffee for a while. And I did that. It's very interesting. And now, you know, I, after kind of freeing up that one, because I love coffee so much, uh, going back to, well, you'd never know it hearing me talk, <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, going back to, I'm drinking one right now, as a matter of fact, um, going back to, uh, going back to it, then it's like, okay, well, I have these two cups and I, I want the third one, but I know if I have it, I know what's going to happen. And so I just, I don't, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and really with food and stuff, it, it's, as far as just another fun little moment of like mindfulness that breaks the attachment and deepens the experience is like, I've gotten to where everything I eat, like I, I sniff it before I, I eat it. Mm -hmm. And like, even like a cashew, a date, you know, whatever it is. Just right. like taking, like stopping and really like smelling that and going like, yeah. holy shit, right. this, like, what planet did this thing come from? Which I guess <laughs> Earth, but it's like, like what a galactic little gem this is. Totally. And then when you actually taste it slowly, not just rushing through it to get to whatever the next one or something else, yeah, it becomes this insanely rich, It you that's when you're tasting God, you know, that's, you're like, okay. Mm -hmm. I'm merging with the one right now through this thing, and it becomes a beautiful experience. Um, yep. But more complicated things to give up that, uh, you know, th those things are easy. Those are external things. It's really, it, really complicated and tough, and it takes a lot of reflection and contemplation, in my opinion, and conversation with mm -hmm. other people to give up things like relationships. Mm -hmm. um, they're so complicated. And what we get and give in relationships has so much richness and value. And it also at the same time can have so much uh, destruction and imbalance. Mm -hmm. And particularly people who are seeking to do good to do the right thing, to lead with 
integrity and compassion and kindness mm-hmm. often find the, the, is the, the hardest and slipperiest person, you know, circumstances, which is why it's a good teaching mm-hmm. for, for someone to get into. Because what happens, ultimately, it ends in setting boundaries or mm-hmm. letting go of relationships altogether. But it's, it's so tough because you want to not release those relationships that you understand are uh, harmful or they are leading you into other areas that aren't where you want to be per se. Yeah, that's a tough one. That's like the friend that you love because he's been your friend for 10 years, but when he comes around, it's you know it's not good for you. Exactly, exactly. And it can you can file that down you know, as nuanced as you like. And sp- but yes, that's exactly it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And, it's, and that's a real tough one, man. And, and then it hurts you because you think that if you stop hanging out with them or you even tell them like, yo, I don't, you know, or they get the vibe that it's just not working between you two anymore, then they're mad at you. And you're like, you don't want anyone mad at you. You just want self-growth. Right. And that's the <laughs> that's where the the compassionate person turns into the sacrificial lamb, you know, because you start going, you start saying, okay, well, they're mad at me and I feel empath- empath- empathy and compassion for them. I don't want them to be mad at me or feel hurt. So I will in turn then sacrifice my own feelings to serve their their momentary reaction so that they're not mad at me and that becomes this that's kind of what i was talking about earlier with the complicated nature of those things and that this is both parents and family members and stuff too of course and you see the big picture and you go okay i see the big picture i understand i can sort of accept some of the 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 garbage of the situation because i know how to put it in it in its place conceptually i can kind of let it go or I, I see how it's not about me it doesn't really matter what matters is that this person is sort of not upset and so i right. keep taking on that that garbage or stomaching whatever yeah and what happens is you end up just filling yourself full of trash yeah and, and you're really not honoring them or yourself by doing that it seems like you're and it takes a long took me a long time to understand this yeah, because you're really doing the right thing, you know. Mm-hmm. But you kind of have to like eat your own good faith to to <laughs> see reality, and it's it's hard to swallow, you know. But right. you serve both sides best by putting up. Speaking of little Instagram things, mm-hmm. one of the things I, I said was grace was putting up boundaries without withholding love. Yep. I love that. I saw you post that and that was genius. I just, I knew it when I saw it and I read it, it just rang as truth. And I 110% agree with you on that. And that is one of the toughest lessons for people to learn because we grow up, you know, in these schooling systems and in these communities and you want to be liked, you know, we all want to people to like us. If you don't want people to like us, then, you know, you're kind of an oddball and that type of thing. But honestly, sometimes those guys change the fucking world like Elon Musk, you know, like he was in, he was an oddball in school. Maybe no one really liked him, thought he was weird, but look what he did, you know? So it's not about the validation we can get by being liked, but that is a super hard pill to swallow because so many people think that uh, what other people think they are is what they are. Right. That's not, that's not the case. And it's just such a hard pill to swallow. <laughs> totally, totally, man. The funny, the, it, 
that really I kind of correct that egg by thinking of it like this, where you know, revisiting the the concept and the truth that all of our perceptions are subjective. You know, the the way that we see the world is an abstraction. You know, it's it's an impression, a reading of what's out there, and it forms through our senses into the arising consciousness you know it's filtered through our conditioning and our past and our experiences Mm -hmm. and all that so we're all getting this kind of entry point into what is we have this image of reality which no one's actually really touching objective truth Mm -hmm. and so culture really does a number on our heads and it makes us think that like we have to be a certain way and so given that we're individuating animals we try and uh, place our value in our identity by doing <laughs> we separate from the herd to try and make ourselves unique but th- we do it in a way that we do it based off of what everyone else w- uh, what we think everyone else thinks yeah so we go okay all those people out there who or you're really imagining you think all of them think that this is cool so i'll separate myself and move myself special by mimicking a conglomeration of what I think everyone else thinks is cool. Mm -hmm. And then you try and make that, you wear that as an identity. And Mm -hmm. so then you feel, okay, now people will like me. And a lot of them do because you're mimicking the collection, the average of what everyone else thinks. Yeah, I've got these cars or this jewelry or whatever. Yeah, and so the trip comes whenever you realize that they're all thinking, everyone else is going, ah, I, here's what I think everyone else thinks is cool. I'm going to be that. And then you're going, here's what I think everyone else thinks is cool. I'm going to be that. But we're all just being what everyone else, what we think everyone else is thinking that is cool. So we're like right. three levels removed from mm-hmm. reality. And if you just let all of that stuff go and be yourself and ignore all that other stuff, the irony is that that is who people actually find interesting. Hundred percent. It's like it's like a paradox almost. It absolutely is. Yeah. You know, and that's a that's a really great teaching. So I really appreciate that. Um, I know we're running short on time, um, but I did have a question from our mutual friend Zarin, who I was speaking with just before our podcast began. And um, it, it kind of is coming left field from where we were just talking about, but uh, I did want to make sure I asked you, which was, um, you know, can you recall the moment in time that led you to uh, your interest in meditation? Like the, the first thing maybe in your life path that, that intrigued you into meditation and you said, I want to try that. I want to know more about that. I want you know, it was it a person? Was it a philosophy? Like, what was it that maybe inspired you? Because you know, to the listeners, probably many of them know you're a meditation teacher and and someone who's written extensively about uh, meditation and you know, champion that technology of of the mind. So, uh, yeah, what inspired you towards meditation as if as early back as you can think? Yeah, I, the first thing that really inspired me was just how I was feeling. You know, and and that's the impetus for it all was feeling immense anxiety, feeling detached and depersonalized from myself, feeling uh, fear and discomfort in my own body, 
feeling, you know, the kind of emotional manipulations of my surroundings, making it where my inner inside, I realized that that was the only sort of safe space was like, okay, no matter what's happening outside of me, inside here, I am fine. I can have my own sanctuary in my own mind and body. Mm -hmm. And through that suffering, I chanced upon, again, we could say with the script of what is meant to be, it all unfolds as it needs to be. I, chan I chanced upon hearing someone say Nietzsche's name. Over, I, my, I overheard someone, and it just stuck in my brain as a teenager. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then I was in a bookstore and saw the name on the spine of a book, Went over, pulled it out, opened it up, and said, "Wow, this is not what I think, but it's how I think." And I felt a real connection to yeah. that. As I felt seen in this way in the world, like, "Oh, this is how my brain works." And then I started getting, I got obsessed with Western philosophy and just read for hours and hours a day for years. And then once I sort of digested the Western canon, I then there's a lot of uh, people like Schopenhauer's one that spoke about Eastern thought in Western philosophy. And uh, which, by the way, Schopenhauer and I have the same birthday, which is kind of funny. But wow, uh, yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, and then, uh, so then I, I got into Eastern thought and I, I went and started reading Eastern philosophy, really just randomly picking up mm -hmm. books, like going like, and you know, it's kind of finding and discovering the hippie philosophers at the same time. Uh, like Robert Anton Wilson and uh, you know Alan Watts and Terrence McKenna and stuff. Love them. And then I started. Uh, they were like sort of a bridge at, at, while like I was reading this stuff, and so I really picked up the Tibetan Book of the Dead first. You know, right. I was like, well, as like a I don't know how old I was, like fifteen, fourteen, I don't know something like that. Wow. And going like, okay, well, I'm going to read this. And, you know, that's a big book and it's pretty Ooh. abstract and far out and. um I remember just like I learned from I had this this grit and willpower from reading Western philosophy because it's so complicated and uh, a lot of it's just so um, it, it's just so much of it could be an eight, so many eight hundred page page books could be two hundred pages <laughs> you know <laughs> the problem with it is that they're finding their own point through the exploration of them talking to themselves on the page. Mm -hmm. But it will not, not a lot of it is edited or cut back because of the arrogance of basically white males just being the <laughs> ones in charge and the one writing, you know? Sure. And so um, it's like if a dog pees on a spot, like it's not about how much pee they get on there. It's just that they get pee. But if you ask them like, right. you want to take half that pee away? They're like, no way. That's, you know, that's, <laughs> that's kind of the same thing. And right. so, uh, and so, uh, yeah, man. So I, but I, I figured out that like, as I read that stuff, even though I didn't understand it at first, it was really challenging. If I just st like stuck to it and I, I, I've always had this kind of grit or like willpower um, and patience to to go through because I I sniffed the the change in my consciousness as it was happening and I realized like wow this is worth the effort you know and yeah. it became so obsessed just the uh, reading something in Western philosophy and then when I was done like pushing through these sentences rereading each sentence over and over and over uh, until I understood it and then moving to the next one and rereading it over and over until I understood it I could yeah. feel the light of the boundary, the horizon of my consciousness expanding. And I would feel like stoned afterwards. 
And I realized like, oh, my, I'm literally expanding my mind. And why wouldn't I do that forever and as hard as possible? Because look right. what it's doing. It's it's expanding the, the map of my consciousness. And so I'm understanding myself better by understanding the world better. And yeah. so I think taking that, the sort of um, boot camp of that to Eastern thought, which is um, not less complicated, but so much more gentle and and nurturing in its in most cases uh it was easy for me to then it was like a joy to sit start sitting with that stuff and so then i started reading that and whenever i started reading that i thought oh well this is not not only uh how i think but it's what i think this is the these are the val these are the wordless values and intuitions i had I guess from from birth, really, like it seems just like the right way, you know, no pun intended. Um, um, and so I started, I got obsessed with all of that. And as I was reading that, this is where I started just reading about meditation. It's I, you know, in a lot of those, I was reading the old school text from the beginning, where it's like it's just saying dwelling, like you just dwell in, you know, on this thought, you dwell in this space, right? And um, yeah, so that was the earliest sort of entry point, and mm. actually trying it. I, you know, this is in the '90s, so I, this is no, there's no YouTube, there's no Google. It's mm. all books and just self experimentation. Right. And uh, so I would just go and no, I have no idea what I was doing. I would lay down on my bed and just close my eyes. Mm. I would just try and like take big breaths slowly. Mm. And that was just how I started. And I, I would kind of like watch my mind and go like, all right, well, I guess I'm, I feel less like there's like an angry beehive inside of me. And mm-hmm. I feel like the bees were a little more calm. Yep. And speaking of, of Thich Nhat Hanh, he has a beautiful way of, uh, as he always does with everything, of describing that, where um, it's a famous kind of story of his where he talks about uh, at Plum Village, he has this glass of, uh, orange juice or grapefruit juice or whatever and he pours it and it has all the pulp in there and this young girl that's there um this little child she looks at it and she's like i don't want to drink that it's got all the gross pulp in it and he's like okay and then she goes away and she comes back and by the time she comes back the pulp is all settled and the, it looks clear and she goes oh thank you for changing that out for me i want to drink that now <laughs> and he's like i didn't change it out the glass was still enough to where it all settled. Wow. And she's like, is that what you do when you're sitting? And he's like, yes. And so he's like, so she understood meditation, you know, through that without any languaging. And that's kind of what was happening in that moment. It's like the pulp was settling. Um, Anyways. How long, how, that's beautiful. Thank you. How long does it take, uh, you know, for a solid meditation? Is it five minutes, 20 minutes, an hour before you really have, let that settle. I, I suppose it's different for every person, but you know, I would say the general bands are. It's you know, like anything, the, how much time you spend is how what you're going to get out of it. But mm-hmm. you know, five minutes you can blow off. You know, one minute has value. One minute mm-hmm. is better than no minutes. One minute yeah. is something. Five minutes you can blow off a a little bit of the steam. You know, you can sort of mm-hmm. some of that just autopilot nervous system uh reactivity the mm-hmm. intention that you feel you can cool out a little bit 
uh, 10 minutes, you get a little bit deeper. That's whenever the body really starts to, to rest. And mm-hmm. really what's happening um, at that point is generally around the 10 to 15 minute mark is mm-hmm. whenever the nervous system switches from uh, over to the parasympathetic mode. So we're normally in this kind of uh, sympathetic nervous system mode where we're kind of in the fight or flight, assessing, uh, reacting type of space. Uh, lung tissue and mus- bronchial tissue are, are dilated. Uh, the pulse is, is higher than resting. That's where most people spend most of their day. Um, and so whenever you, the parasympathetic mode, we get into that space whenever uh, it's called the rest and digest mode. So after you eat, mm-hmm. after you go to the bathroom, after sex, the body goes into a, a, a mode of resting and sort of uh, just cooling out, right, and rebalancing. So in meditation, you go into that space. And what happens is that your mind goes from, you know, normally it's kind of the the lower ancient brain, the amygdala is where sympathetic mode is and the parasympathetic is much more uh in the in the frontal newer part of the brain is sort of attached to that area and so you get out you biologically get out of this reactive fight or flight mode and into the rest and digest and that's whenever you really feel the body flip over to that like post thanksgiving meal you know like (laughs) ah like i'm deep in my chair right now yeah um and so also I, i said something that i should clarify because people might I don't know if anyone caught this, but I mentioned mm-hmm. that the um, the the bronchial tissue, the muscles expand whenever we're stressed, and so people normally think, "Well, that's confusing." Shouldn't they? So that conversely, whenever we're calm, that means they constrict, which is correct. So people think that, well, in meditation, shouldn't I, if I'm in deep meditation, have my bronchial tissue muscles be expanded so I can take big deep breaths? Well, no, it's actually the opposite. So you want they would they constrict because we tend to think that during meditation we need to be taking these long, deep breaths the whole time. Whenever really the value in that is only getting to the switching on of the parasympathetic nervous system. And so okay. whenever you switch on to that, um, you're doing that because you're in your fight or flight mode. So think about why your your tissue and your lungs would be expanded why you need to take big breaths that's whenever you need a lot of oxygen and that happens whenever you're running from a predator or fighting because you're gasping for air and the mm-hmm. muscles tissues expand to get as much as possible whenever you go into the deeper parts of meditation or into the resting part of of the body those tissues contract because they don't need as much air because there's there's no fear there's no the the system isn't pumping is, is hard, so it doesn't need as much. And that's why people, uh, when you get to the, the, after, you know, 10 to 15 minutes of meditation, you'll find that your breath becomes quite steady and shallow. And that's actually how you want it. That's something that I was yeah. unclear on for a long time. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that provides a lot of insight. Yeah. And so people, you, you can get distracted by trying to take these performative long breaths the whole time. And really you, it's, it's taking away from, uh, your your potential nowness. Um, Got it. So, so, so use the breath to get into it. Yeah. But then you know, once you're once you're finding that calm state, just let the breath do its thing. Exactly. Exactly. And so then, twenty minutes is a nice milestone uh, where you'll get you'll get deep into the zone there. That's where you can get a lot of 
letting go, you know, and and really getting into the space and the, and the mind changes. That's really where you can get in touch with this place of, uh, you know, the, the witness can get full on at that space where you can think in your mind mm-hmm. instead of I'm having a thought right now, I'm sitting here meditating, mm-hmm. I'm feeling or smelling this. Yeah. You can say to yourself, an awareness is here. And every time your mind goes, oh, I'm, I'm thinking about no, an awareness is thinking about this. Right. And I, I think a, a good place that can help you feel like the meditation is working is when you stop looking at the time. Because for the first five, 10 minutes, I feel like I'm checking the time. Like how hmm. long have I gone? How long have I gone? I just want to look real quick and find out. But then by the end of it, I'm like, what is time? <laughs> yeah, it's an illusion. Uh, yeah. If you ever read that book by Carlo Rovelli called The Order of Time, it's a beautiful description of how gravitational waves from the Earth affect the flow of the actual flow of time and how time is fluid, even from the bottom of sea level to the top of mountaintop. It's quite fascinating. If you like, if you took two geared watches that were per- in perfect unison and took right. and put, left one at sea level, one at the top of a mountain, over time they would become out of sync because the gravitational waves that are pulling on those things affect the the density of of matter and the flow of matter and hence the flow of time it's kind of fascinating um i love it which is also why if you go out in deep space and you, you come back to earth people w- would have aged faster than you right relativity the too. interstellar thing yes um i love it so yeah th- uh, for that um a very valuable thing is setting a little alert on your phone or something so that way you're not watching time just if you know you want to do 15 minutes put a little alarm for 15 minutes and that way you're like okay cool i cannot worry about it and i'll get there whenever i get there um but i i agree with you you definitely don't want to be it's not about the time per se it's about you know what you're doing during that time um and just to get back to the bands like you know 30 minutes is really really valuable it's it's worth the extra 10 minutes yeah. you know you think about like people will they think oh 10 minutes that's a long time but people will be walking through their house like looking at their phone or whatever and they'll just stop in the hallway because they're just <laughs> like enamored by what's on their phone and they'll flick through and they'll go oh yeah what was i doing i was going to the kitchen they, right. you'll, you'll do that for 10 minutes a day you know like you can it's totally. 10 minutes is no big deal yeah, trade um, it over. Yeah. It's way worth it. Yeah. It's, um, the law, you know, so I just actually finished a 40 day meditation practice where I meditated every day for 40 days, but I only did 11 minutes. Um, it felt very uh, easy, um, but it has certainly led me to a deeper appreciation. And it's something that has come and gone with me over the past few years because I was super into meditation for a while. And then the quarantine hit and I was just playing video games like a madman. Just, to, I don't know, like all my friends started playing games again mm. because of the quarantine. Yeah. Um, so we were MMO, MMOing it and stuff. And I kind of fell away from meditation for a few months, but then I realized something was missing in my life. So I brought it back and me and my friends just finished a 40 day meditation. And all I can say is it has inspired me to go deeper, longer, and just to keep it up. And I really recommend it. Um, and, uh, I want to try this 30 minutes now. And the longest I've ever done was three hours, but I will say it kind of, I would kind of open, I would open my eyes and, and kind of move around for two or three minutes and then go back to it. So it wasn't three hours 
completely like eyes shut yeah. but it was like a focused like three hour session yeah so to kind of finish off our conversation it's just i'm just curious you know as a meditation um practitioner yourself what is maybe the longest you've gone uh, that you find beneficial or doable those sound like two questions to me what's the longest i've gone yeah. and then what's what time do i find beneficial yes um i the longest i've gone I mean, maybe four or five hours. And what was the experience like? Oh, it was, I mean, it was great. It was just um, mm -hmm. resting in that place of no mind for that long is, is basically just hanging out in the space of liberation. Love it. You know, and I, <laughs> I used to do this in my 20s, and I've actually returned to this during quarantine, is I meditate in my closet. So I have a, 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 you know, a closet that has enough space to where I can put my, you know, Zafu and Zabuton in there, my meditation mat and pillow. Okay. And I go in there and I close the door. And so that way it's quiet and dark. And it's just this nice little cocoon where it's, um, you know, it's just an undisturbed space, which is quite, quite lovely. Um, but yeah, so, you know, that amount of time was good. And now I, I typically meditate about uh, an hour a day. Uh yeah. Some you know two sessions, maybe thirty five minutes and thirty five minutes, or forty minutes and thirty minutes, just mm -hmm. depending on kind of whatever happens. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's that's what I go for. I think that in, in anyone starting out, you know, it's it's not uh, as you say. You, you made a good. You you brought up a good thing, and as far as to having this three hour session, there's no real reason anyone that's just starting should try and do that because they're not really going to get much out of it other than discomfort. Um, sure. And you shouldn't worry about you shouldn't worry about feeling shrink wrapped while you're doing it. You know, if people think like, "Oh, my back hurts," I'm not allowed to move. It's like, well, hold on. Use that as a interesting kind of get curious about that and use that as a, a little teaching because you go, your back hurts. You can just yeah. focus on that for a minute and go, "Oh, hold on," or your nose itches or whatever. You go, "Hold on a second. Before I just react to that and move my back or scratch my nose, let's focus for a second on like." That's interesting. It's a sensation that's coming up. It's a signal mm -hmm. from my body. And let me feel that for a minute and go, the the pain in the back is a, a feeling. And it's my body trying to tell me that it hurts and it needs to be repositioned. And you can kind of get on the, you learn the other side of it where you're like, oh, this is just a sensation. It's not really a thing to react to or to get hung up in. Mm -hmm. It's just a feeling and you can play with it. And then once you do that, then you know, you can move and, and reposition. It's no big deal. Um, but people starting, you know, it, consistency is key because it really has a compound effect. Because ultimately what's happening happening is you're slowly rewiring your nervous, your nervous system and your neuroplasticity is shifting. And the more that you do it consecutively, uh, it's like if you play your video games, you know, you get into it uh, one day, you're rusty, you know, and then you play yeah. two days in a row, you're getting better. And then right. if you were to come back a month later, you'd be rusty again. But if you play every day, you're in the flow. You're just like crushing it. And you really, you know, your brain wires to optimize your performance. And meditation is the same way. The difference is the performance that's optimizing is your consciousness. Wow. And that's way better, man. Yeah. Way more beneficial than video games. So play the video game that is meditation, everyone. <laughs> uh, try it out. You know, I think you'll love it. And thank you so much for your time, Corey. 
Uh, it's, it's an absolute pleasure and just always love connecting with you. So that was a bunch of awesome wisdom and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, man. I had a great time speaking with you. I appreciate you inviting me on your, your podcast. Yes, yes, it's an honor. So just to finish it off, uh, where can people learn more? Um, your website, your social URL, and your social handle, I mean. Yeah, they can go to my website, which is Corey-Allen.com. And my social media stuff is Hey Corey Allen on all the platforms. Love it. Thanks again for being here. Thank you, man.